Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Babalang babala, babalang babala, which is, of course, Tagalog for Achtung, Achtung. And as you all know, we have ways of making you talk, listeners. Tagalog is spoken widely in the Philippines. In fact, about a quarter of the population speak it as their first language. The Philippines saw some bitter fighting after the Japanese invaded in December 1941. US forces lost around 23,000 men killed or captured, not their finest hour. And another 10,000 Filipino soldiers were also lost. I'm sure we'll talk about that another time. Yeah, we've got to deal with the Philippines and MacArthur and all the rest of it. Got to do that. But um, I quite like that one. I like Babalang Babala. It's a bit, it's a bit Sopranos, isn't it? A bit bada bing. A bit is a bit, yeah. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Good. Right now, uh, we're starting to get the impression some of our listeners are rather big on insubordination. Here's a, how about this email? So uh, that dates him from Julian Barrett, who lives and listens in Australia. I'm, I'm very much enjoying and learning from your podcast. I know you'll keep up the good work. Your enthusiasm for this... Uh, I'm not going to bother with that. Your enthusiasm for the subject is, of course, the huge strength of the whole thing. But, you see, now... now oh. Neurosim of the, the praise. Yeah. But it inhibits your triumphs and objectives in at least two ways. And I am so bold as to suggest the following. <laughs> Try and speak whole sentences. You both have the tendency to start a sentence two, three or four times, and indeed... Never finish it. Leaving I, a sort of I, in- I, 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 yeah, I exactly. never. Yeah, leaving a sort of impression of meeting a meaning short of actual clarity. Let your guests answer your questions. You often butt in with your usually insightful observations, but the poor, knowledgeable, and modest bastard is intimidated by your self-confidence, and we don't get to hear enough of his or her expertise. You know what? I think it's, it's about me. And anyway. After after giving us a heavy steer that no producer ever would in their right mind would ever dream of doing if they wanted to work with me again, after offering us these pearls of wisdom, Julian goes on to offer a rather interesting anecdote. Now this is good, right? This is worth it. Um, it this is the it, we've had some grit. Now here's the pearl in the oyster. You recently made some comments about Italian POWs in North Africa. I now live in Australia, where many of my friends and fellow citizens have grandfathers who found themselves fighting for the Axis rather than the Allied side in the late unpleasantness, as an old colleague of mine used to refer to World War Two. I was talking to Vittorio Bianco from Calabria in Italy, and he said his Italian grandfather was in the Western Desert in 1941. I asked if he survived the war. He did. And so he was presumably a POW. No, said Vittorio. He went back to Italy. What, I asked? Did he say, Sarge, I'm a bit fed up here and I would like to go home? Vittorio said the explanation was that in late 1941 or early 42, his great-grandfather died in Calabria and that made his grandfather the head of the family and as such he was repatriated by the Italian army to fulfil his family responsibilities. I suspect that may not have happened in other armies. Keep up the good work, as if you wouldn't. Cheers, Julian Barrett. What do you make of that? That's incredible. Well, yeah, and actually, I've come across a similar one to that um, because um, I'm looking at a guy called Giuseppe Brucoleri, um, and I, I talked to his daughter, Ingella, in Sicily a few months yep. back, 
and something rather similar. So he he um, his father had died, and he had this family business in Jella. He was like the big man in Jella. Yeah. Um, and he was yeah. an engineer, and he was putting up barrage balloons in Toronto and Naples and so on. And so his mother wrote to Mussolini and said, look, it's, this is intolerable. Um, the man of the family's died. You know, I need my son back here to kind of take hold of the family businesses and stuff. Can he, you know, can I bring him back? And Mussolini wrote back to him and said, yeah, he needs to put up some barrage balloons in Syracuse in Augusta. And once he's done that, he can go home and um, uh, and do some military stuff there. So he did. And um, he set up <laughs> a, a telephone switchboard and was building, um, helping to create um, uh, coastal defences. And because they didn't have enough supplies and enough material, some of them they were making out of cardboard and wood. Right. And then and then he changed sides, right? Yeah, so the night before, so the night of yeah. the invasion, the night of the invasion, he told all his men manning the switchboard and himself, he said, right, all our uniforms, let's get rid of them. Let's hide them. Uh, we'll get rid of all the weapons, get back into civvy dress. And do you know what? He wasn't arrested. We are, there you go, you see. Italians, right. no fools. Indeed. Perfect. So there you go. Right, now we have a question. Um, uh, and I'm going to uh, 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 declare the interest from my daughter, Scarlett, who has yep. been... Uh, who has been listening, um, which which surprised me, to be honest. She got in touch and said, Dad, I've been listening to the podcast. I really enjoy it. And I'm thinking, right, okay, something's up. How much do you want? <laughs> yes, <Right>? exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, Scarlett's been listening and she says she loves the podcast, right? Um, she wants to know. And, and she hasn't got in touch is, using email. Y- y- no, she hasn't used email. It's a, f- a Facebook message. Um, now, and I think this is a really interesting question, actually. She wants to know, what happened to German war heroes after the war and how society, German society, handled them given they'd A, lost, obviously, and B, been fighting for Nazism after all, mm. to, you know, well, one, one way or another. Um, and I think that's a really interesting question because obviously in this country, are war heroes forgotten or not? At least, at least were celebrated. You could, you, could, you could wear your medals. You did have a cenotaph parade. You did have, uh, you know, uh, Commonwealth War Grave Commission t- uh, graves for the for the for the fallen and so on. What happens in Germany? Because you must have interviewed people. Yeah, you've. I mean, I, you interviewed aces along the way for the Battle of Britain book. So yeah, I have, and I'll, I'll come to I'll come to one in a minute. But the, the the I would say one of the most the top five most profoundly moving um, interviews I've ever done with veterans was with a German called Friedrich Buchner. Yep. And, and he lived in a little place called Ludwigstadt, which was kind of southeast of Leipzig. So had ended up being, I think, in the kind of, you know, on the East Germany in, in the Second World War. Mm. And his family business was making little slate boards. They had a slate mine in the, in the town. And they had, the, they had right. the kind of biggest house in the town, which wasn't very big, but it was sort of bigger than most. And they used to make these little chalkboards for people in school so that you would, you know, you'd write right. with, you'd, you'd have a little one each, a bit the size of an iPad or something. And, and that's what right. they used to make. Anyway, I went down to visit him. He'd been in serving in Italy. And uh, we got talking and talked about the 1930s and stuff. And it was all going absolutely fine. And then we had um, his wife made us a lunch. And it was sort of classic German stuff. Lots of bold potatoes and cabbage and all that kind of crap. Um, yeah. And it was all very fine. And then he said afterwards, he said, look, look we'll, we'll continue the conversation upstairs. I've got, I've got a room at the top of the house. And uh, we'll, we'll go out there. And my wife will bring up some coffee. So we went all the way up the stairs. And it was this kind of attic room in the, in the, in the top. And in there, it was just books and books and books on world war Two, and it was his iron cross second class on the on the uh, framed on the wall and all the rest of it yeah and anyway we started getting to the nitty-gritty of it of his wartime experiences um as an artillery officer junior artillery officer arriving in the front kind of i think very early part of 1945 
and his wife came up with some coffee and it was little cups and saucers and as he was pouring it out he was starting to shake and I remember thinking oh I hadn't noticed that before uh, and and we got to the retreat across the River Po, and he was explaining how they had mm-hmm. to shoot all their horses, and people were drowning in the river and desperate to flee across the River Po. This was sort of you know April nineteen forty five, and yeah. suddenly he just lost it. He absolutely lost it. He was you know I'm not I'm not talking about welling up a bit. He was in full on head in the hands, buckets of water, right. right. And of course, I said to him, "Look, you know, please, you know, I really don't want you to be upset about this. You know, don't, don't, don't feel you've got to tell me." And and between his sobs, he kept going, "No, I want to, I want to." Anyway, he recovered his composure, and um, was telling the rest of the story. And they managed to get across the Po, and he was retreating up. They're just tramping up, and eventually they got into the kind of foothills of the Alps. They were trying to get back into through the Tyrol into into Austria. They got captured yeah. by partisans, and amongst the partisans, uh, the prisoners that the partisans had were a bunch of Russians who had been fighting on the side of the Germans. And the Russians mm. decided the the partisans decided to execute the Russians, but they were all kind of you know ill trained partisans and stuff. They weren't, and they did made a really ham fisted job of it. And several of these guys weren't dead; they were lying on the ground screaming. And again, he just absolutely lost it. Friedrich Buckner just just lost it. He was yeah. just in bits. He could, you know, we had to. We were just sat there. We, you know, Christ, I was, I, you know, my bottom lip was going. I mean, it was really, yeah, really yeah. deeply upsetting. And he recovered again, and he said, "That was the thirtieth of April, nineteen forty-five. It was the day Hitler shot himself, and it was my nineteenth birthday." God Almighty! Uh, and it was just absolutely amazing. Uh, and, yeah. and anyway, he again he recovered, and we talked about his post-war life and stuff. And, he, and actually, he'd, he'd sort of you know had an okay time. Yeah, yeah. But at the end yeah. of the interview, he said, I, "I said, well, look, I'm really sorry for making you go through that, but I said that was the most incredible conversation. I'm really, really gra- glad you yeah. shared that with me." And he said, "I have never ever told anyone what I've just told you." Wow. Yeah. Wow. And and I thought, but. God, how amazing. You know, you you know, our guys, it doesn't matter how traumatic it was, how upsetting it was, how broken they are by their experiences in the Second World War. At least they're patted on the max. At least we wear poppies on, you know, in November. Yeah. At least we have Armistice Day and Remembrance Sunday and all the rest of it. You know, we, we, we venerate these guys. They're complete heroes. You know, we, we, we really put them on a pedestal. He has had... It's done exactly what they've done. You know, he he is he's been an eighteen year old recruited, yeah, totally beyond his control, gone out to the Second World War, found himself in this absolute maelstrom, total nightmare of of, of violence yeah. and and just totally removed from anything he could ever possibly have understood um, as a, as a boy growing up in you know this backwater of South East East Germany, been through all that, done his bit, gone back, and he's got to feel ashamed of what he went through. He's got to, he's well, got yes, to but, bury it. But 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 by I mean we've talked about this quite a lot. That at the end of the, at the end of the war, when for instance a Berger Belsen is discovered, the whole British army goes, "Oh right, that's what we're fighting, fighting about. That's what that's what we're actually here to stop." And they you know and and up to that point, you've had people fighting for each other, fighting so they can get home, fighting uh, uh, because they've been conscripted, you know, all, all, all the myriad of dis- different reasons, the kind of crusaders, the crusaders part, the crusade moment has passed, hasn't it, by, yep. by, the, by the start of 1945. And then, they, and then they discover the death camps. And that has a massive impact, moral, uh, sort of inject a moral core to the Allied effort. Of course. That, that, 
people were perhaps unaware of certainly that you know and 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 uh, David Baddiel's program re- really re- recently about Holocaust denial. There's that bit where he goes to the uh, National Archive and he finds the he finds the thing um, saying, you know, don't 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 let's not dwell on the fact that Jews are suffering really horribly under the Nazi regime because because you know people are anti-Semitic. They might not they might not buy that, you know. Uh, uh, but then at the end of the war, you get this thing. What impact does the discovery of those camps or not? Discovery is perhaps the wrong word for for German for, for for Germany at the end of the war. The public display of those camps and the actual because after all, there's the endless debate. But people people knew people knew that Jews were being were being uh, moved east um, euphemistically or whatever or re uh, uh, you know uh, sent elsewhere or whatever. The, but the the public display of it and that you know after the war. Films were made and Germans were made to go go watch films of the death camps and the concentration camps. And they were, you know, certainly Bergen-Belsen, the locals were sent to look at the camp. What did that, what does that do to the soldier who up to that point has thought, has, has thought as best he can within the Nazi uh, regime? Because after all, you know, the other thing that changes after 1943 is Goebbels is quite explicit and says, well, you know, given the stuff we've, Given the stuff we've done, we're all in this together now. We've got to fight. To, yeah. We've got to fight to the death. But but what what must that have done to a, to to your nineteen uh, year old? It goes, oh shit! You know the thing I was fighting for was this. The thing I was fighting to defend. Because yes. after all, with, with with fighter pilots in particularly, for instance, you know, f- f- fighter <laughs> pilots you get it often gets framed in chivalric terms, and it gets framed in terms of you know, knights of the air and, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's in a way it's peep show. Are we the bad guys? It's, 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 yes, that, yes, it, yes. it's that moment. And what must that have done for guys who thought they were, who thought they were just, so, we're ju- I'm just a soldier. You know, Hans von Luck was just a soldier, but you know, he met Hitler for crying, for crying out loud. It, uh, uh, yeah. uh, you, you, you know what I mean? And that's the thing I think is really, 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 really interesting. Because obviously a lot of that went underground and, German veterans must have met and talked about the good old days, but but had to elide well, around lot, the moral There, there are lots and lots of veterans uh, veterans societies. I mean, there's a whole U-boat thing going on. You know, there's huge yeah. U-boat veterans societies, and they meet regularly. Um, uh, ditto with Knights Cross winners. Um, ditto with the SS, of course. You know, with lots of SS yeah. fraternities and stuff. Um, but you know, if you're if you're a 19 year old like Frigid Buckner, you know you, you're you are a total pawn. I mean, you're you're just a total innocent caught up in this. You're going to war for mm. all the same reasons that that a, a British soldier is or an American is because you've got to because yeah. you're fighting for your country, for your neighbours, for your family, um, because you don't have any choice. Yes, of course, but uh, but, but but yes, of course. You know, so so he comes back and the... he probably he probably just thinks right, I've got to I've just got to bury it. You know, I've just got to not think about it. But of course, inevitably, as you get older, you know, and to a certain extent, you know, you, you're concentrating so hard on kind of trying to rebuild Germany, rebuild your life, you know, just create some normality again, that that actually that's sort of quite possible in, in many circumstances. And it's only when you sort of get to your 60s and you start retiring and, you know, you suddenly you've got a bit of time to contextualise what happened yeah. to you, uh, that you start thinking about it all and you know and, and start analyzing it a little bit and th- that's entirely common whatever whatever nation you're from i mean it's interesting hans eckard bob um who's a fighter pilot that you've just been reading about and, and yeah yeah i, I, the, I met a the... number of times and i really liked him i mean he was really good fun um but i mean you know he he uh, as well as interviewing him he also did write a, a memoir it was called betrayed ideals i mean that's his 
That's his memoir. And his memoir isn't just about um, his time in the war. It's also about his post-war life as well. You know, and a lot right. of these guys, you know, they've had incredible responsibility. They've been the top guy and suddenly they're not. You know, suddenly they're just yep. Mr. Shabby with no, you know, with, with two Fenix to their name. Uh, and they've got to kind of make a make a go of it. I mean, what you find is quite often is a lot of these guys who, who are better educated, who have um, had ex- had authority, that actually they're the ones, of course, who get on in life because yeah. they've got that natural leadership. They've got that intuition, that intelligence, and all the rest of it, that kind of spirit, that fight that enables them to kind of rebuild their lives. And, well, and, and our Bob ends up being a kind of farm labourer originally and then sets up a, a, a haulage business, uh, and it, yeah. it's pretty successful. And but he's, th- and he was also- great. I mean, he was, he was, he was also- still flying for the rest of his life. I mean, he flew right up into his 90s. Had JG fifty four right. incorporated into his car number plate. Yeah, yeah. But also, what happens after the after the war? Three years later, is basically from the idea of intensity nazification, the idea of we need to completely bring everyone to justice. Is you know the Cold War starts, and yeah. so so an awful lot of people who've been who've been let's let's be honest now. You know, if you're if you're a if you're a, high up in the Wehrmacht if you're high up in the here you know you knew exactly what was going on you knew exactly what you were fighting for you're not a 19 year old pawn and those people then of course get get gobbled up by the Bundeswehr because the Red Army's a threat and all this sort of thing a German and you know and the town planners who worked for Speer for instance in Berlin then after the war are the town planners in Berlin Mm. and the and the same in Hamburg and 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 all over Germany like a whole absolutely Yep. And it's the same in France to a certain extent. I mean, de Gaulle quite consciously says, OK, we're not going to go after all these milices. We're not going to go yep. on about We're not going to talk about our anti-Semitism in the Second World War because if we do that, we'll never recover as a nation. Which yep. is why when the Sorrow and the Pity comes out in 1968, which is this absolutely pioneering landmark documentary series about um, France's experience in the Second World War through the prism of one town, which is Clermont-Ferrand um, in the Auvergne, yeah. um, it's banned. You know, and it's and it and it isn't shown. I think until late nineteen eighties or early nineteen nineties and stuff. I mean, if you haven't seen it, I really couldn't recommend it more. Yeah. It's totally brilliant. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, there yeah. is this kind of real politic gets in the way where you just have to sort of get on and rebuild. And what's really interesting, I mean, we we've mentioned Guy Walters in his book um, Hunting Evil in the past. I mean, he always says you know much better title for it should it should have been not Hunting Evil because. Yeah. That a handful of people are executed, you know, there's the Nuremberg trials, and then everyone kind of runs out of steam, you know, because there's other things to worry about and other things to kind of, you know, and and real evil guys who've done terrible things end up working for MI6 and, and yeah. you know, and the CIA and yeah. and, and the KGB and stuff. I mean... And, and sending people to the moon. Uh, right, and people, well. um, yes, and people end up... Yes, exactly, of course, and end up in Argentina. <laughs> and people, There is just no will to go and do this. And Simon Wiesenthal claiming that, you know, he's tracked down thousands. He hasn't. He's cl- he tracked down about six. I mean, literally. <laughs> well, there, there, there's, a, there's a moment where we're going to need to take a break. Um, uh, we've made it to our metaphorical breach, but before we scramble up under the fire of the guns, we'll take a short break. Just time to thank our one listener in the Arland Islands for his or her support. Um, you've got the time it takes for this break to tell us where the Arland Islands are, of course. See you in a tick.
Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Now, at the risk of turning this into a bizarre geographical quiz show, who got the Ireland Islands out there? Which one of you? I don't believe you. No, 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 they're not there. Quite wrong. They're nowhere. No, they're not near the Philippines. And they're not. No, they're not an archipelago off Argentina that's disputed. They're actually a collection of around six and a half thousand islands in the Baltic Sea. The Good. islands are Finnish. The population speaks Swedish. Of course, they're autonomous. And how about this? In World War II, their merchant fleet sailed both for the Allies and for Germany. Amazing. Extra marks if you got that last bit. Right. Now, um, you mentioned Hand, Hans Eckhart Bob as, as uh, earlier on. Now, I have been reading f- f- for money, let's be honest now. I've been reading the audiobook of your Battle of Britain uh, book. Well, I'm glad is- you got paid because if, if you hadn't, I'd have, I'd have just... It would just, I'd have just felt too much in your debt and it would just be... Well, I read it... Well, yeah, yeah. I'll be yeah, beholden be, to I mean, you and that just wouldn't be right. Given, given it's over 800 pages and my word, it's a thick book. Okay, it's 800 pages um, because, you know, it's got a lot of sources and index and all that kind well, of crap. that's what I wanted to That's what I wanted it's to divided, say. It's divided, okay, um, it is divided into four parts. Yep. Each chapter is no more than 15 pages long. So yep. you, you, can, you can take your time over it. You can, you, yeah. can, you know, you're still making progress. Yeah. Well, anyway, I what, what several things. I want to say how much I enjoyed it. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, uh, what I really liked about it is because um, I, you know, uh, ba- the Battle of Britain it isn't a historical event. It's a movie. It's uh, books by Len Dayton. It's airfix. It's almost it's a way of life. life. It's almost a way of life. <laughs> and what was really fantastic about your book, I thought. And I'm not just saying this um, because when's it out? <laughs> oh, I can't remember, but I think it might be the 19th of March. Right. Okay. That's just that's the day before my tour resumes. Wow. The 20th of March in Watford. Uh, uh, global pandemics permitting. Yes. Um, that that. What I really liked about it is it's not just about the air battle, and it doesn't. You don't start in, uh, 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 you know, J- June 1940 or May 1940. You you you. You lay the whole thing out. And and particularly the thing I really, really, really loved was once you've got it all up and running, you go, right, well, actually, here's the here rather than doing in 1938 work starts to fight the defense system. Once the battle's up and running, you go, right, here's how here's the doubting system. Here's how it was set up. Here's who he hired. Here's who he was dealing with. Here's who he, who he spoke to and how well joined up everything was, even with the air ministry sort of being bureaucratic and slow that the different bits the different cogs that that Dowding has at his disposal and the things he creates as well it's really really interesting because because if you come at it from the air battle as it starts when the when the RAF is under strength if you come at it from that point of view you don't know that the sort of because the are the the, the the fighter pilots are literally the tip of the iceberg yeah. they are literally in the case of the defence system for the Battle of Britain, they are—they very much are, you know, the sat atop, you know, they're the guys on top of the rocket rather than the people who built the rocket. And, yes. and, and I think the way you make that point is really, really, is really, it really comes over very well. It's really important as well because otherwise, otherwise, there, you can easily slither down into the uh, the few myth, which is it's is it's six hundred blokes save the world, whereas in fact it's six hundred blokes. With hundreds of thousands of people working, it's the many, not the few. Name. 
that's the point. It's the many, not exactly. the few. Uh, and yeah. and well, I'm 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 glad it it hit all those ticked all those boxes for you. I mean, that's exactly what I was trying to do. And and you know, like everybody else, yeah. you know, I started off with the Battle of Britain movie. In fact, actually, I didn't. I started off with with going with with seeing that Spitfire when I was playing cricket, going up to Duxford. Yeah walking around the bookshops, picking up David Crook and, and Spitfire Pilot and just thinking, yeah. where's 1940 been all my life? I mean, you know, what, you know <laughs> I mean, for me, 1940 is just tops, but I, 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 I just find it so endlessly fascinating. Well, and when it came to, when, when I suddenly, you know, and I've written a novel with a back, I've written two novels actually with a backdrop of the Battle of Britain. So suddenly I had this golden opportunity to write this this history book of the Battle of Britain. And I thought, this is, you know, for me, this is the daddy. I mean, I'm never going to have this opportunity again. You know, got to get it, got to get it as right as I possibly can with the kind of what I know, at, you know, with what I've got at my fingertips at that particular time. I did a shitload of research for it. Um, and I just, I just found unlaying, you know, peeling off these layers of the onion, um, just yeah. so fascinating. And I really wanted to tell it in the round. I wanted to tell that story of, of bomber command, of of, uh, of, of yes. coastal command, of Harry Tate's navy. I mean, that's just amazing. All these completely rugged um, fishermen who've been plying their trade all their lives down the east coast, and there's nothing they don't know about the sea and the North Sea. Uh, and there they are on their trawlers with their kind of twenty millimeter cannon kind of stamped onto the onto the onto the poop deck, um, laying mines and, and and sweeping for mines instead of for mackerel. I mean, it's just totally yeah. brilliant. And and the ability well, you- of Britain to kind of just just you know harness all these people in very quick order and put them into an effective yeah. defence force. It's just amazing. Right, but there's a thick. There's one thing you got upset about. I want- no, not upset about that. I really need to ask some questions about. Got him. Right now, uh, one of the things you do really well in the book is you compare Be- Beaverbrook and Oudet, right? And you look at Oudet and you look at Beaverbrook and you say, "Here's here's basically, you know, crony appointments. Make them make, make no no bones about it at all. Beaverbrook is a crony appointment. He's a crony pal of Churchill's, but but he's but he." But it, it works out fine, right? Yeah. And Udet is a crony mate of Goings, and it's a disastrous appointment. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of spectacularly so. And doesn't he end up killing himself? Yes, he does. Yeah, does November he? 94. Yeah, yeah, right. Because he just can't deal with it, yeah. right? Cannot deal with it. He's a, he's a drunk. He can't cope with the He's drug addict. He's drug addict. Drug addict, drunk. And he, and he knows perfectly well also that the, the kit he's producing is all rubbish because yeah. he's out of his depth and all that. Now, the only reason I... The, the only reason... Uh, 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 this came to mind is having read Adam Two's um, uh, Wages of Destruction, right? Yeah. He makes the point that Spear, uh, uh, Spear becomes head of organization, Todd, and takes over the fighter production drive. Um, where, uh, uh, and is it, that's a crony appointment, right? Pala Hitler's, right? And immediately says, look at the fighter production uptick I have, I have created. But the point twos makes is he says airframes take six months to lay down, nine months to lay down. So an uptick that coincides with an appointment is no such thing. It's correlation isn't causation. Ah, I'm, I'm seeing and where Be- you're going with this. Do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah. So Beaverbrook, Beaverbrook gets the job, crony appointment. You get an uptick in fighter production. But those airframes were laid down months before. 
Yes, and this is um, this is where I um, my generosity to Beaverbrook has been challenged by Seb Cox, who is uh, a, a lovely right. chap and the head of the Air Historical Branch, and he thinks I've been too generous in this. Um, uh, what I say is that is is that is not the case. Airframes are not laid down; they don't take six months to make. What you do, but the the machine tools do jigs and tools and jigs, stuff, uh, jigs yeah. and machine tools absolutely do, and so do shadow factories. The point is is that the shadow factories are already there and in existence, but they're not working very efficiently. And what right. what Beaverbrook does is, in very very quick order, turns them from having all the facilities which are already in place and which have been set up by people like Wilfred Freeman and um, um, uh, Lord Swinton, um, who are absolute yeah. key players in all this, and they've been doing that in the background in 1938 and 1939. What Beaverbrook yeah. does is cut out loads and loads of red tape and just sharpen up the whole thing. And that sharpening up the whole right. thing means that they're suddenly they're operating at three six five, you know, twenty four seven, rather than right. kind of nine to five, kind of Monday to Friday, and that's the big right. difference. And that that results in exponential growth. And the other problem is the other thing that the Beaverbrook correctly um, gets is there are all sorts of bottlenecks in this whole process. And the whole yep. sorting out a bottleneck in the traditional kind of pre-war way is what you do is you write to someone, it sits on their desk for two days, then they write back, it sits on your desk for two days, and then eventually kind of 10 days later something happens. He just thinks, sod that, I'm not doing any of that, I'm just going to pick up the blower. And, and, if, and if the but, phone, but, phone call and the bollocking doesn't work, then he sends someone straight down to Castle Bromwich or wherever it might be, or, or Supermarine in, in Southampton Water, and, and, and kicks butt. And that's what he does. And he, and he has all those sort of messages up in his, in his, in his yeah. office saying things like, you know, yes. committees, committees take never, the punch can... out of war and stuff, which I love. Well, well, which is really interesting, because one of the things Spear does is sets up a load of committees. So, um, uh, uh, I mean, the, you know, the Allied... Are, Allied war effort is of often uh, characterised as, as as a, a collegiate committee war effort, and that's why it works. Yeah. After all, you know, the, 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 uh, Churchill runs a collegiate war cabinet. Yes. Um, where people can argue with him and say no to him. And Brooke, Brooke, of course, famously is the guy is the guy who says no to Churchill all the time, and curbs his sort of um, more more crazy ideas and all this sort of thing. Yeah. And yet Spear famously sets up a bunch of committees that that, that have got sort of yes. dynamic names and then takes credit for anything. Yeah, he does. And actually, I mean, the, 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 the person who's responsible for the um, for the massive improvement in production of the Luftwaffe, of course, is Erhard Milk, who's a field marshal. Yeah. And he is, without a shadow of doubt, the most comp- one of the most competent people and administrators in Nazi Germany. And he's certainly the most competent person in the Luftwaffe by a country mile. But, oh no! But but by miles, and, and he and is the guy be... who set all this stuff up. And the point is, is that the moment yeah. he's already started to take over from Udet in the summer of 1941, because Udet's just totally out of it. And then once Udet commits suicide, then then Milk does take over completely. So by the time that the central planning um, uh, comes into being, which is in maybe let's say for argument's sake, May April May 1942 under Speer, when Speer yeah. takes over from. Uh, 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 from Tot in February 1942, um, there is a three-way. There are three people in charge of the central planning. The central planning. There's there's Milk, there's Speer, and there's this third guy who has no role whatsoever. He's just a kind of nominal person. Yeah. It is basically the Milk and Speer show. It's just that Speer is the kind of PR darling and the public figure and the one who's close to Hitler, and Milk isn't. But Milk is doing every bit of the work that that Speer is doing and, and more. And he is the one who is 
is is working to to build up the Luftwaffe, but he's already got that in process by the time the central planning and he and he pals up yeah. with, with Speer in the first place. Yeah. Just go back to back to Beaverbrook though. What is really interesting about Beaverbrook is Beaverbrook also completely transformed the civilian repair organisation, the CRO, yeah. which is absolutely key to the whole thing. And it's not just about producing new Spitfires. It is and, and hurricanes. It is also about, about fixing, get, them. fixing them and getting them back on because thirty percent approximately of all the casualties in the Battle of Britain are homebound. Um, accidents, you know, uh, without any enemy whatsoever. And you've got to kind of repair that. And he changes that. Around. He he takes out the air ministry out of the whole thing. He takes out the ministry of production out of the whole thing and just, just basically runs the whole show himself and streamlines yeah. it and puts it into these different categories and all the rest of it. And it is that overhaul of the civilian repair organisation combined with his complete kind of I'm a total shit um, everyone's got to work like slaves approach and the kind of reduction of, of aircraft types to just five, three bombers and two fighters, single engine fighters which kind of again streamlines the whole thing that is what makes a difference on a foundation which has already been set up but isn't working very yeah. very efficiently so I think he is okay. absolutely due his credit Okay, good. Well, okay. I'd still, I'm still sucking my teeth at that. Now, okay. <laughs> wow. So Ryan Little has written to us. We've got some some questions from from the listeners rather than just from me trying to uh, wind you up. Ryan Little says, <laughs> "Love the show. You guys are amazing." Oh, well, you know. Thanks, Brian. Our listeners are great. They're the best. Why the was the Eighth Army? Why was the Eighth Army named so? As there weren't many British armies in the field. Yes, well, that's an extremely good question, um, and one that I don't have a precise answer to, except well, that it's to about... do with it's to do with making it seem like there's more than there are. Yeah, but why they chose the eighth, yeah. I'm not sure. I think it's no. I, I tell you exactly why it is. It's because there are seven French armies. Ah, oh. yeah. Oh, and France was an ally at the time, and so they had that, and they didn't want to have any confusion, so they went to eight. And then, and then, but then Torch is um, first arm. Yeah, but the French are gone by then, you know, we don't care. Um, I know. And, so, and although, so, although, so although I know the 8th Army the comes afterwards. Yeah, well, that, yeah. yeah. And, and, and also the reason the first army is called the first army is because it is a combined Anglo-US army. Though it is, it is commanded by the British and run on British lines, there is US 2 Corps is attached to first army. So it is a kind yeah. of, it's a, it's, it's given that first nom- um, moniker because it is something really new and exciting. It's, it's, it's brand new, yeah. And, 18, and then, and then and 18th then, Army Group is called 18th Army Group because of one for First Army and eight because of yeah. Eighth Army. Yeah. And then you get and then you get Second Army uh, for Normandy. So yes. they, they go they start to go numerical at that yeah. point. And then 14th Army, which was um, Army East Command, yeah. wasn't it? Yes. So that they they get. They get given a number. Slim picks a number. Yeah, Eastern Army. Yeah, and I don't know why they. Well, I think they've. There's, there's always been a. There's been a tenth army, isn't there, in Iraq? And there's been a twelfth army, yeah. which is used um, in yeah. 1943. Um, and thirteen is unlucky, so no one would ever call them. Um, no one would ever have a thirteenth army. But, but but a lot of. I, in fact, I don't think there's to... ever been a thirteenth army. It, it, it... That's a... maybe there has. Maybe there's, there was a German thirteenth army. Who knows? Anyway, the thing is, they got completely destroyed all... in a pocket in the Soviet Union. <laughs> Because <laughs> the thing with the, the, the airborne divisions, for instance, there's first airborne division, sixth airborne division. That is purely to give the impression there are six airborne divisions. Yes. Um, uh, and then you get, uh, and they merge after the war and become um, 16th Airborne Brigade, I think, yes. e- eventually, when they get they get merged and shrunk. So uh, the, 
you know, I mean, there the, is an interesting thing. The numbering, the numbering is sort of intriguing, isn't it? Because, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, there's first, first, you, you know, there's the first, you, you, Fusag, isn't there? Um, the fa- the Phantom Army that Patton that Patton commands before um, uh, before D Day. Yes, the first there? U.S. But, Army Army Group, first U.S. Yeah. Army Group. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, you know, 101st Airborne Division. There aren't 100. American airborne divisions, <laughs> but that's the 101st Airborne is a converted and a con- converted existing formation. They use the uh, existing headquarters as something else. Same way with 82nd. Um, yes, I mean that is a, that is a really good question. Actually, I, I, surely what they would have at the War Office is because the same with operation names is they'd have a you know be they'd have a folder, wouldn't they? And they go right the next time we were going to number is going to be second arm. We've already done, we've done the badges already in the paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd have thought so, wouldn't you? Um, uh, yeah. With squadrons, it's interesting because first, at one to two hundred are RAF British squadrons. Three hundreds are foreign, so Czech, yeah. Belgian, Polish. Three, three yeah. Four uh, hundreds, I think, are New Zealand, aren't they? And Canadian, maybe. And the six hundreds are they reserve? They're all, yeah, they're auxiliary ones, and then they run yeah. out. They run out by the time they get to six one seven and six one eight squadrons. Yeah. Because that was a that was a style thing with your with with your Battle of Britain book is is um, say you know f- first squadron or number one squadron or twenty third squadron you wouldn't call it two three squadron would you but you'd call six oh six six oh six you wouldn't go the six hundred six 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 hundred ninth no squadron no it's very so interesting. Yeah, and I, I mean, one of the things I always try and do with with the books because you're you're conscious that you're you're trying to keep people interested, and you and you know you want those units to be familiar, and you want them to sink in. So I always try and write the the military units in the language of the nation in which I'm talking about, because that immediately yeah. makes so instead of saying, you know, third squadron of JG twenty seven, I would go three staffel because then you immediately yeah. know it's Luftwaffe, not RF that I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, Staffel of Geschwader, Jag Geschwader yeah. two, and all yeah. that. But I'm having, I'm getting, in a, I'm getting in a massive pickle at the moment in Sicily Good with point. with with four two nine little circle um, battaglioni uh, costiera for for the Italians. It's all got quite complicated, and I'm slightly wondering whether I need to kind of break my rule. Oh well, there's a. I mean, you're going to know it's you're going to know it's Italian, aren't you? If you see that, well, but, you are well, going to know it's Italian. It saves you that problem, I suppose. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> well, that was that was all good. Um, uh, <laughs> well, you know what I'm going to say now, don't you, ladies and gentlemen? Hangang Samuli, which is, of course, see you soon in Tagalog. <laughs> That's brilliant, isn't Cheerio. it? Cheerio. Bye-bye. Cheerio.